Well, let's get started. Um, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in the series, The New Man, talking about how we become this, this righteous man or woman in this either way you want to look at it, but how we become born again and how we're created new into the image of God. That happens at that born again moment. And the question came down to how do we get there? Because yes, it, it, it is by God, but how do we get there? And I wanted to start because we needed to look at what faith is and more importantly, what faith is not. And that's the key because the word faith gets thrown around on everything today. Everything. In fact, um, I'll tell you this, that those who don't believe in God have faith. They have faith. They do. If faith is in themselves. Faith is in science. It's outside of, of the realm of reality, to be honest with you, but they believe it. So why do we, as the church, if God, and we read this last week, that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and the completion of it. How come we don't understand what the word is? We throw it at everything. And we began to look at the definition, and let's put this up here. Is faith, when you look at this in, when you break it down, this is in the Greek, this is how it's used. Obviously the word faith gets used there, but it's this assurance, this belief, this fidelity. It's that I know that God is. Remember what Hebrews 11 said, that we have to believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see the word blind faith? should never be in your vocabulary. There is nothing that we are just taking a leap of faith in the things of God. Because it's not a leap to trust God to do what he said he will do. Right? A leap of faith for a guy like me is sitting in a plastic chair. Okay? Because plastic's not real sturdy. And I'm not real light. And that's not a good combination. Okay? Have you ever caught, you guys ever gone across like a, a uh, what do they call like a drawbridge or something? It's the rope bridges and you walk and it moves and it sways and all of that? That's a leap of faith, y'all. Because you are trusting in knots. And if it was my knot, you shouldn't trust in it. It's like every time I went fishing for years, I'd get a bite and the hook would be gone. Every time. You know, I didn't know what I was doing. Those are leaps of faith. When it comes to God, it's not a stretch to believe him, but yet for some reason we don't. You see, faith isn't blind. Faith is grounded in reality. It's accepting what we hear as truth. When Jesus talks to people about their faith, it is about their belief. And we looked at an example of this last week. The woman with the issue of blood. In Luke chapter 8, let's, let's go there to start with, because we're going we're gonna to build upon this this week, because we've got to understand what this is. And starting in verse 41, it said, And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had, only, uh, had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Keep that portion in the back of your mind. We're going to go back there later. But as he went, the multitude thronged him. So he's heading over to Jairus' house, but he's getting a crowd around him. A woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude strong and press you and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me for I perceive power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was, not, or that she was hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she had, was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
Here's the problem with this passage, because you see it in Mark and you see it in Matthew also, is that we're like, oh, if you just had enough faith, you need more faith. She had so much faith that she was willing to just go after anything. And she put her faith in that garment, and therefore she knew all she had to do was touch it. Like, we can put some sort of a fleece out there. Okay, God, if I do, you know, three backflips and chewing gumballs at the same time, then I'll be healed. And that's how it's taught today. But as I showed you last week, that is not what's going on here. This is a woman that knew the word of God. She knew what the prophet said. Because this word here, and I'm not going to go through all of this again, but I'll show you briefly. Talking about the border of his garment or the hem of his garment is referring to what uh, possibly here are these prayer shawls. But more importantly, are these zitzits. I showed this last week. If you weren't here, this will be new information for you. But remember, they would wear these. They would put them. When it talked about going into their closet, they would put it up over their head. They were underneath the protection of God. Nothing could talk to them. Nothing could touch them. Only God. But they have these on every corner with a blue thread going through the middle of it. There are five knots of eight strands. The word zitzit in the Maseroth, which is the numeric system, the alphanumeric system, every letter has a number, comes to 600. Then you have the eight strings plus the five knots. That's 13, 613 laws. But the hymn is this very thing right here. So what makes her get up in the morning and say, if I can only touch that, I'll be healed. Well, that's where we went back into Numbers. Numbers chapter 15, where it explains what these are. And you see the definition for this is also used in Hebrew as the word wings. And how God puts the, the Israel, we saw that in Psalm, I think it's 92, under their wings and all of that. But this is from the words of Malachi. In Malachi chapter 4, it says, verse 2, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. You see, that son of righteousness is a messianic title for Jesus. She knew because the prophets had spoken it and it was written down that there was healing in this. What's magical about this? Nothing. Nothing. It is string. That's all it is. But it's what God said that matters. How did her faith make her whole? Because she heard the word and accepted it as truth. She knew when the Messiah came, there would be healing in his wings. And you see it further on in Mark that many came and touched the hem of his garment and all were made well. It wasn't just her. So this isn't a, a thing about pressing through or pushing in or any of that stuff. Parts of that certainly is true. This is about hearing the word of God and accepting it as truth. This is where we go to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes must believe that he is and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You notice it doesn't say casually seek him. Casual Christianity is what we have today. People want to just take Jesus. Hey, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. Add a little bit of God in my life. Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I'll do some good things. That's all they want. That's not what this says. He said he's a rewarder. But in order to be rewarded by him, you have to believe that he is. Now think about that. Think about how powerful that, that he is. It doesn't say that he is this or he is that, that he is as if he exists. And so that he is, that you believe that he is, and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. When you diligently seek something, you go after it with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Everything you've got, you are seeking after him. And that's the thing, guys, is what happened to that? We don't have that today. We want to mix church in. We want to mix Jesus in, but we don't want to live diligently for him. And that's the sad thing. But 
we look at this in the context of what it is, is that in Hebrews 11, you've got things going on. This is the hall of faith. This is where, where God, or the writer of Hebrews is kind of explaining that all these people, that Abraham and Moses and all these, that they were justified, not by what they did, but that they believed in him, which is where we're at. This new man starts by believing in him. Without that, we can't have it. So how did her faith make her whole? She believed that he was the Messiah. And because he was the Messiah, that prophecy by Malachi applied to him. And if that prophecy by Malachi applied to him, therefore she knew, if I just touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be made whole. You guys follow me on that? We've got to understand that. It's that what did the prophets write about the Messiah? What does the word of God say about Jesus? Well, we'll get there. Let's go on. Romans chapter 4. And we'll start in verse 1. Romans is kind of like the, uh, I don't know, the, the playbook for the church, if you will. He's going through and giving a lot of directions. But it's also talking about the nation of Israel and parts of it. Here we go, Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh? This is a question mark. So in other words, was he found according to what he brought to the table? For if Abraham was justified by works, remember, now what is justified? This is the, the amount, this is the moment when God makes us whole. We accept Jesus as our Savior. Now we're made right. So was he justified, justified by works? He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now look at this. He's saying, did Abraham do something to become justified by God? No, he simply believed. Now Abraham did a lot of things. He did a lot of good things. He's going to expand upon that in a minute. But it's like, if grace comes by works, then it's not grace. You earned it. It's a debt. It's like you owe me. I mean, can you imagine standing before God and saying, well, God, I gave to the poor, and I helped the widows, and I did all these good things. You owe me. You need to let me in. You owe me. Can you imagine standing before God saying that? I mean, could you imagine somebody standing here today saying that? What would you do? If this was the person making that statement, you'd begin to take a few steps this way, because you know the lightning's coming, right? The smiter's getting warmed up. It's coming out. But look at this as he goes on. But to him who does not work, but believes on him or in him, who justifies the ungodly, that's the him, so you are ungodly, but he justified, his faith is accounted for righteousness. His what? His faith, his belief, his assurance, his accepting the word for what it is. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? This is referring to the Jews. Remember, that was a Jewish thing. Or upon the uncircumcised also. So we're talking Jew and Gentile here. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or while he was uncircumcised? It's a fair question. Because remember, the circumcision was got them into the covenant. Okay? So was it because of that, or was it before? Well, it's not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. I'm going to pause there. What was that seal? What was the seal of righteousness? Well, what is the seal of righteousness today? 
It's the Holy Spirit, right? Did Abraham have the Holy Spirit on him? Yeah. Was it passed out freely? No. No, it wasn't. Moses had the Holy Spirit. David had the Holy Spirit. Saul had the Holy Spirit upon him, and then he removed because of sin, right? He was accounted righteous before he ever did the things he had to do in order to be underneath the covenant. And I'm not talking about the covenant of Abraham here. The father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which, are, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. What is the faith? The faith in the way, into Jesus ultimately. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made no effect because the law brings about wrath. For there, where there is no law, there is no transgression. He said just keeping the law is not what makes you right with God. These people are in a special covenant with God. And he said, listen, if you'll do what I say, you'll be good. If you don't, well, you're going to have problems, right? But that's not what made them right. Because otherwise, why would Moses stand there and look at the Israelites? It's like, you need to circumcise your hearts. Right? Because you can do all the deeds, but it doesn't matter if your heart is far from God. You see Jesus addressing that with the Pharisees. Like, oh yeah, you go around and you're fasting and you look like you're fasting because you want everybody to know that you're fasting. You're wasting your time because your heart is not near God. So here we go. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Therefore means because of this, okay, that it is according to grace. It is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Because as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things that which did not exist as though they did. You see, he's saying, it's like, it's not just for the Jews anymore. This is for everybody. But Abraham had to accept that by faith because the promise was afar off. But it wasn't because he did a whole bunch of things that God made this promise and therefore he was accounted to him righteous. It was because he believed God. He was fully persuaded that God was and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So, as it is written, I made you the father of many nations in the presence of him who believed whom he believed God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they were, who contrary to hope, uh, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Why was it contrary to hope? You see, we like to try to make a distinction between hope and faith. If you're hoping, you're not having faith. If faith is better than hope. Against hope was the fact that how can I be the father of many nations when I'm old and my wife's womb is dead? She was unable to conceive a child. So against hope, he had to stand in faith for the things that God was promising him. Well, let's go on. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. Okay, now let's pause there for a minute, y'all. If a 100-year-old starts having babies, it's going to be on CNN. I can assure you that. They'll stop the anti-Trump speech for a little bit and talk about the 100-year-old that's making babies. Okay, I'm telling you what, because why? They, they don't, that doesn't happen. 
physically. It's nearly impossible, except with God. And the deadness of Sarah's womb. She couldn't have kids either. There ain't no 100-year-old women making babies, right? It doesn't happen. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced, some Bibles say fully persuaded, that what he, he being God, had promised, he was able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Or because of that, it was accounted to him righteousness. You see, God made promises to Abraham. And none of them make any sense. But he said, Abraham accepted them as truth. He believed that they were and accepted them as truth. And therefore, it was accounted to him as righteousness. Even though none of this is physically possible, he knew that God was able to. Remember when we read in Hebrews 11 and how it talked about how Abraham took Isaac up there on the mountain. As God told him, I need you to go. I want you to go sacrifice your son. It says that he knew that God was able to raise him back because he had made a promise that Isaac would have children. He knew it. He was fully persuaded that what God promised, God would do. Okay? Verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. In case you didn't know why Jesus died, now you do. It was because of all our offenses and he was raised up for our justification. What part of that just said what you brought to the table? Nothing. You've got to get that. You cannot earn salvation from God. And with that, once you receive it as it's a gift, you cannot lose salvation from God. It doesn't fall away. You sinning does not make you less righteous. It makes you out of fellowship with God. You may be able to choose to walk away from the faith when you stop believing. I'll maybe give you that one. But you didn't earn your way into it by good works. Bad works aren't getting you out of it. You see, it is based on Him. And all of this is written down, but look at this next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So because of this, because we've been justified by our belief in accepting this as truth, we have peace with God. But it's through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith, our belief, into this grace in which we stand <coughs> and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. <clears throat> guys, I'm telling you, when you get this, when you begin to understand that God said it, therefore I should believe it, it changes things. It's no longer a matter of just simply like, okay, yeah, I get that. That's what the Bible says and stuff. I mean, if, when you read this stuff slow and you begin to break it down, you're seeing how all that Abraham did and accomplished was simply because of the promise of God. And all Abraham had to do was believe it. So when, when God said, I need you to get up from the place that you're at, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. You notice what he didn't say? I want you to go to 123 Main Street in this city. He said, a land that I'll show you. <coughs> what did Abraham do? He got up and started moving. Took him a while. He didn't sprint there. But it, he got there. That takes faith. That takes belief in God. When God says something, it takes belief to accept it. Even down to salvation. You know what we're teaching here today is contrary to what many churches not just here, but all over the world are teaching. Because they won't say, well, yeah, okay, they'll say you're justified by faith. But then they put a bunch of strings attached to it. 
You see, either Jesus did it or he didn't. And it says that he did it. And he says, those who come to me need to come by faith, belief, fully persuaded. You see, that's just it. What made him righteous, if you will, is that he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Are you? Are you? If we're being honest with ourselves, not so much. We're so easily, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm saved. I'm born again. Yep, can accept that. Not a problem. But it's the rest of it. You see, because God made a lot of promises, one of which is healing. Okay? Because I want to focus on that today a little bit. How are we saved? It's by grace through faith. But if everything that Jesus did on the cross was just to bring us justification, in other words, make us saved, well, that would be the end of it. But that's not what it says. Because he also says that we are healed because of the work that Jesus did. By his stripes we are healed. You see that in Isaiah, and we're going to look at that in a minute. So if we're saved by grace through faith, how are we healed? By grace through faith. We have to believe it. We can't. Now that may sound funny, coming from a guy who's struggling to talk, right? I have no doubt in my mind that this wasn't put on me by God. I have no doubt in my mind that this is just a coincidence. I, I fully believe this is attacking the enemy. But I want to show you something today. I want to break down Isaiah. Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53 are the great messianic uh, words that Isaiah wrote down. In fact, many of the rabbis today won't allow their, their, their congregants or whatever they would call them to even read these. They say, well, you can't understand that. You know, I may have told you guys this story, but uh, a guy named Hal Lindsey, some of you are familiar with him. He was really popular back in the 80s and 90s, but he used to be the uh, campus crusade director at UCLA. And uh, he was doing some things, and somebody invited this, this offensive lineman that played for UCLA. So, you know, he's a pretty big guy, and he was a Jewish man. And so he went to the Bible study that Hal was doing, and he got mad because he was teaching through this. And he said, you Christians make that stuff up. He's like, that's not in my Bible. And Hal said, well, why don't you go home? And you look it up in your Bible, and you get back to me. He's like, okay. I mean, you know, I don't know if linemen back then were 315 pounds, but they are today. Could you imagine making statements like that? Pretty, pretty confident. So he goes home. He opens it up. Well, sure enough, it's right there. So he goes to his rabbi. He said, uh, how come no one ever talked about this or read it? And the rabbi reads it. He's like, huh, well, I didn't know that was in there. That's what he said. And he said, because, you know, this sure seems to sound like Jesus. And the rabbi said, yeah, you're right. This does seem to sound like Jesus. But we don't believe in Jesus, so that can't be what he's talking about. Did he accept what he heard as truth? No. He read it. He rejected it. Now, this lineman gave his heart to the Lord. His rabbi, I don't know whatever happened. But all because he just went to the word. So when you get into this 52 and, 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 and 53, it starts at Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 13 and works this way to I think 53, 12 or something like that. And when you begin to look at this, you start to see, it's like, now what is God promising here? Ultimately, he is promising our salvation. It's written down hundreds of years in advance before Jesus is even on the scene. But what all is he promising? So let's look at this here. Let's go to Isaiah 53. We're going to start here in, in chapter uh, 53, starting in verse 1. And we're going to go through this slowly. Remember, this is about Jesus, ultimately. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. That he is referring to the Messiah, whom we call Jesus. And as a root out of dry ground, 
He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. So he's, he's not, you know, the best looking guy in the world. Okay. A man of sorrows, and he's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now, I'm going to pause here for a minute. Because you notice I underline that word grief. When we hear the word grief, what do we think of? Well, if somebody's grieving, somebody dies, they're grieving, they're sad. Okay? So it says that he's acquainted with grief. In other words, he's familiar with it. It's how we think it. Acquaintance, you're familiar with it. But actually, that word goes a little bit deeper. It's almost like he's taking grief on himself. So was Jesus taking the sadness of the world on himself? Well, if you're just reading it on a surface level uh, moment, yeah, that's kind of what it sounds like. But when you really start to dig into this word, let's look at this. Notice what all of these mean. This is the Hebrew word, I'm not going to say this right, holly, H-O-L-I. And notice what the overall thing, sickness, suffering, disease, injury, illness, malady, sickbed, affliction, infirmity. You see, he's saying he's acquainted with that. When did he become acquainted with that? Because he took that on himself. So it's not just sadness. He's not just acquainted with grief. He took, if I'm reading this correctly, it seems like he took this sickness and this illness, these maladies, and all that other stuff on himself. That kind of changes the, the way we read this, doesn't it? Just a little bit. I mean, maybe it's like, well, okay, maybe it's a little different. Well, let's go to verse 4. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to those slides. Let's look at the word born. Well, here we go. We got this. Right? Griefs, injury. He's born them. Born them, right? Do I have that up there? I do. It means to carry, to lift, to lift up, to raise. He becomes an armor bearer. What is an armor bearer? Armor bearer is the one who carries the armor for the one who's going to wear it. So did he carry our sickness, our illness, all of that on himself? He lifted up. Guys, you see what this is saying? He, once we decide what the word grieves mean, now he's carried them on our behalf. Are you guys following this? Like, this should get you excited. Because if the woman with the issue of blood can say, hey, if I just go touch the tzitzits, I'm going to be healed. Well, this is, this is way more obvious. Way more obvious. So he carried our sickness, our maladies, our injuries, our illnesses on himself. But let's go to the next part. And he carried our sorrows. Let's go on. Let's look at this. Right? Carried, carried all that burden, laden, bare, all of this stuff. It's, it's, it's from the, uh, the word is sibyl. I don't know how to say it um, when you see the letters right. It's SBL. Uh, but but he, he's, he's taking them on himself. And then you get to the word sorrow, which is makab. What do we see here again? Sorrows. It goes along the same line, this pain and this suffering. It's where sorrows come from. It's the same, using the same type of word as griefs. So what is he carrying? He's carrying everything. Okay? Well, let's go on. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Well, what's transgressions? That's from the Hebrew word pesa. Wrongdoings. Sins. Rebellion. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised. For our iniquities. That's the Hebrew word awan. Our iniquities, our punishments, our misdeeds, our sins, our guilt, our faults. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him. Well, how about the word chastisement? It's musar. Right? The chasing, the rebuke, the bonds, the discipline, the lessons, the instructions, the corrections was upon him. Right? Who is it on? It's on him. Who does that mean it doesn't have to be on? You. Okay? Then it says, and by his stripes, we are healed. What are stripes? Bruises, blows, wounds, hurting, stripes. It's habura. Did Jesus kind of have some of those? Oh, yeah. yeah, maybe just a few. Did you guys ever see Passion of the Christ, the one that, what's his name put out there? almost said Mel Brooks, but I ain't right. That would have definitely changed the tone of the movie a little bit. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's like that thing was so real. You saw people coming out of there, even if they weren't believers, in tears. Because for the first time, it was a reality of what Jesus went through. And I got news for you. I don't even think it painted the full picture. I don't think you can. I mean, you couldn't recognize it. They ripped his beard out of his face. Okay? I'm telling you, from a bearded man with a one-year-old, it hurts. And it's still there. I can't imagine. But by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. Now look at this word heal. It's rafa. It's to be made whole. To be thoroughly healed. We always use this, and we're always talking about, well, yeah, but that's not what that means. It's not referring to sickness. It's referring to our justification. We're made whole like we are, we are, you know, we're, we're now right with God. And that is true. But the word rafa also is referring to the physical healing of the body. And in other words, and you guys have been in Bible study, I heard Janet say this, you are as much saved as you are healed. You see, these are the promises of God. Now, if you think that this isn't enough for you, in other words, after we break down all of these words and we get into the meanings in Hebrew and all this other stuff, if that isn't enough to sell you on the concept, well, then let's look at how it's used in the New Testament. Because the New Testament is somewhat of a commentary on what this Old Testament is talking about. So for that, we go to Matthew chapter 8. We start in verse 14. It says, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. <coughs> That's the mother-in-law, y'all. Okay? Now, I'm not going to stick a show of hands, but if your mother-in-law was sick and dying, would you invite Jesus over? Anyway, we'll move on. And so he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. <coughs> Now, I've heard people say this. Not me. I wouldn't say this thing. But it's like, that's a good woman. You're sick. You're off your feet. Now, let's go. Get to work. Make me a sandwich. I heard somebody say that once. I wouldn't say a thing like that. Verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities, and he bore our sickness. No, wait a minute. So he, he cast out the demons and he healed all who were sick. All in an effort to fulfill what we just read. So what does that tell us? Is it just making the spirit man new? No. That's part of it. But when we are made whole, we are made whole. But we got to walk in it because we don't receive this. So how do we receive it? we got to believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You see, it's being fully persuaded, just as Abraham was. I mean, can you imagine 
in Abraham's circumstances. He is in a pagan country where all sorts of gods are being worshipped. And suddenly God comes to him and says, listen, here's what I need you to do. And he makes him all sorts of promises. What's the easiest thing to do? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Because he was doing well where he was. I ain't leaving. I'm not leaving. He's making money. Life was good. And that's what many of us would do. You know, if the word of the Lord came to us and said, listen, this is what I need you to do. If he said, if God said, I need you to sell all that you have to follow me. You know how many of us would struggle with that? To walk in the fullness of God. Why? Because our, we're not fully persuaded. That we're not completely convinced that God is able to provide for us. So, we, yeah, we, we, we do that in faith and we do kind of believe it, but we don't, we're not fully convinced of it. And we're, we're not fully convinced that, well, what Jesus did actually took away the sickness, so therefore we should be walking in health. We're not fully convinced of that. But you know what we are fully convinced of? And I don't know why. We're fully convinced that we are saved and we're going to heaven. I mean, does that seem odd to you? Just a little because it would make you wonder of, of the only way that you can see that there is a change in you or that that is possible is through the word of God. So you have to take the word of God for what it is and what it says. And then you're like, oh, yep, I'm saved. I'm good. I'm born again. But everything else is like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I have enough faith. I mean, why is that? Why is it? It doesn't make any sense to me. But yet we don't. We don't walk in the fullness of what God has done. You see, if Jesus stripes heals us, then they should heal us. Right? But how do we receive that? We accept it as truth. We saw that with Luke 8. We saw that with what the woman did. She was so convinced that she was willing to break the law. She wasn't supposed to be there because she was bleeding and it made her unclean. She wasn't supposed to be there. And she said, I'm going to go because I'm going to see the fulfillment of the promise of Malachi, of what the word says. And so she went and she did it. But remember what we read about before? We're talking about Jairus, right? Well, let's look at this because Right after this event happens, it goes into Jairus' daughter. So Luke, chapter 8, verse 48. So we're, we're just getting to the end of what we had just read about that woman. So here we go, verse 48, or 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler. This is he is being Jesus. Ruler of the synagogue's house saying, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. Okay? Put yourself in that shoe. You're the father. You're the mother. Someone says, nah, it's too late. It's too late. Okay? Where do you go? We're immediately devastated, right? Immediately. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid. Only believe. It's the same word as faith. Exact same word used there. Pisces. Same word. And she will be made well. Only believe. So when he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl. So picture the room. Jesus in there, the body of the girls there, Peter, James, and John, mom and dad. Okay? Six of them not counting the girl. Now all wept and all mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but she's sleeping. Now watch. This is the words of Jesus. What was the response of the people? And they ridiculed him. They knew that she was dead. So was this girl dead? Yep. Do these people know what dead people look like? Oh, yeah, dealt with them all the time. Okay? No question, she was dead. So he put them all outside. So who was ridiculing him? Who was in the room? Peter, James, John, Mom, and Dad. And then what does he do to those who are ridiculing him? Puts them outside. So who was ridiculing him? Peter, James, John, Mom, and Dad. Right? The only ones in there had to be them. So he put them all outside. He took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, 
And she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat, one of the greatest commands Jesus ever gave. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Why was they astonished? They weren't fully persuaded. They were fully persuaded that he could make her well, but not make her alive. And yet Jesus did it. Whose faith was it? Wasn't a little girl, she's dead. Right? Wasn't mom and dad. Wasn't Peter, James, and John. It was the faith of Jesus. Jesus believed. He knew what he could do. So how do we receive that? Well, we accept it as truth. Okay? So you guys see this here. You see Peter, James, and John had doubt. Right? How many times did Jesus, oh, you a little faith. How long am I going to be with you? And he says all the time, right? I mean, all the time. He's always getting on to it. But look at this. Let's go down to the next chapter. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. This immediately happened. This happens in front of Peter, James, and John. Then he called his 12 disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Okay? Now, why are those two things coinciding with one another? You see the curing of the diseases, you see the casting out of the demons, and you see the preaching of the kingdom of God. Why are those three things correspond with one another? Because of what Isaiah 53 says. Because those three things correspond with one another. All right? And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust of your feet as a testimony against them. So they departed, and they went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now remember, they don't have the Holy Spirit upon them at this point. All they had is what Jesus told them to do. Okay? So they accepted the word of Jesus as truth, and they went out and performed what Jesus said that he gave them authority over. Right? Okay? Well, let's think about that for a minute. Did Jesus tell us we had some authority? Yes, he did. Why don't we do it? Because we don't believe it. Let's go on. Let's look at Matthew chapter 10. Same story. Starting in verse 1. Remember, these things go uh, overlap, but sometimes they give a little bit more detail. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases, to the names of the twelve apostles. So he's going to tell us who it was. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Now, remember, this is right after Jairus, right? And Luke is an orderly account, order of events. It's very orderly. Matthew and Mark, not as much, but Luke, definitely. So Peter had doubted before this, but now he's, he's got him there. Then you got Andrew, his brother James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labaius, though whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, wait a minute. You're telling me that Jesus gave that same authority over the one who would later betray him. You ever caught that before? You ever think about the implication there? Like, do you think Jesus didn't know who it was? Of course he did. He actually calls him out later on about it. But here it is. This is the one who's going to betray Jesus. And he gives him the authority and sends him out and does the work. And then verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So what did he command them to do? Well, we just read. Cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. This is what I want you to do. And so they go out and they do it. They go out and they do it. They're, 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 they're in fully persuaded that they had the ability to do it. So they went out there and did it. 
Right? Because Jesus said they could. Here's what I need you to do. Here's how you're going to do it. Go out there. What was the authority? In the name of Jesus. Right? It was, he was the one that gave the authority. Therefore, it was based on his name. When somebody went out underneath the Roman army, it was in the name of Caesar. When they went to another place. Here, as we have ambassadors that go all over the world, it's in the name of the, typically the president or whoever gives the governing authority that gives them their power. They are a representative. These guys were a representative of Jesus here. Walking in the fullness of the authority that Jesus had given them, all because now they believed it. They mocked him with the little girl. But now they believe it and they go out and they begin to do it. Now here's the question, guys. What did Jesus command us to do? What did he tell us that we need to go do? Because he says to his disciples, and ultimately all who are far off, because we see that in Acts chapter 2, what did he tell us to do? Well, let's look at that. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We don't do that. Some people do. Most of us don't. We don't even go in our neighborhoods. We don't even go in our, our workplace. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. What does that word believe? His faith. He who has faith and accepts it as truth that Jesus is the Messiah, he'll be saved. And these signs will follow those who believe, the ones who give their life to Christ. In my name. What's my name? Jesus. The name of Jesus. Where the authority comes from. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And you know why we don't do it? Because we don't believe it. We are not fully persuaded. We have not accepted that as truth. And therefore, we agree with it. And we agree that it happens. And I know some people can do it. But it's not me. If you can't believe God for this, how can we believe God for anything? At what point? Do we stop segmenting God and putting him in these different boxes and say, I can believe God over here for this, but this other stuff, I don't know. I mean, at what point do we just step in and say, okay, it's by faith. I am going to trust God and I'm going to believe what he says. I mean, guys, for our own, our own well-being, our own healing, what, is we, what do we see about Isaiah 53? It's talking about healing. It is talking about being made whole physically. But why don't we accept that as true? Because we don't have to. We live in a nation with some of the best health care in the world. So because we don't have to, we don't. You go into foreign countries that have either very poor health care or no health care, and you see miracles happening all the time. Because they don't have a choice. It's either get better or die. So they've got to trust God. We don't have to. Why don't we trust God with our finances? Because we don't have to. We live in America. If you own a car in America, you are richer than 48% of the world. No, 84. 84% of the world. Put that in perspective. You own a car. Most of us own cars. Some of us own multiple cars. Right? We're doing okay. So we have to trust God. What happens if you don't have enough money to buy food? Government will step in. We don't have to believe him for that. What are you doing if you're in a foreign country? You have no choice. I mean, that's the thing, guys. We, we've got it so good here that we've lost the ability to simply take God at his word and believe him and trust in him. So the question for you today is, is where is your faith? Are you fully persuaded? Do you believe him? Because we're not done with this topic yet. Because we've got to begin to look at it. It's like, okay, so I see what it is. We know what faith is. It's simply assurance. It's belief. It's, it's convincing. It's all of that. And we've seen it put into practice a little bit. But how do I get there? How do I get to the point of just believing God at his word? 
That's what we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Because we've got to get there, guys. God called us something to do here. And part of that is what we just read in Mark 16. I mean, I've prayed for people. I've watched them supernaturally healed. There is no other explanation for it. I've also prayed for people that weren't. What was the difference? It wasn't God's word. Okay? And it's not because he likes that person and not another person. Because if that's the case, I don't think I'd be on the good list. So it's got to be something else. And we're going to begin to look at that because we've got to get this, guys. This in him concept and being the new man has strings attached in the sense we've got a job to do. We've got to get after it.